Section 36 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. The town contains several very handsome squares, in all of which we find several statues and fountains. Foremost among the churches, the cathedral must be mentioned. Its Gothic façade occupies one entire side of a square. A spacious entrance hall, with two monuments, not executed in a very fine style of art, leads to the interior of the church, which is of considerable extent, but built in a very simple style. The pillars, two of which always stand together, and the four royal monuments at the entrance, are all of Egyptian granite. The finest part of the church is in the chapel of St. Rosalia on the right, not far from the high altar. Both its walls are decorated with large bas-reliefs in marble, beautifully executed. One of these represents the banishment of the plague and the finding of St. Rosalia's bones. A splendid pillar of lapis lazuli, said to be the largest and finest specimen of this stone in existence, stands beside the high altar. The two basins with raised figures at the entrance of the church also deserve notice. The left side of the square is occupied by the Episcopal Palace, a building of no pretensions. Santa Teresia is a small church, containing nothing remarkable except a splendid bas-relief in marble representing the Holy Family, which an Englishman once offered to purchase for an immense sum. The neighboring church of St. Pieta, on the contrary, can be called large and grand. The facades are ornamented with pillars of marble, the altar is richly gilt, and handsome frescoes deck the ceiling. St. Domenigo, another fine church, possesses, my Cicerone assured me, the largest organ in the world. If he had said the greatest he had seen, I could readily have believed him. In St. Ignacio, or Olavasa, near a minor altar at one side, we find a painting representing the Virgin and the infant Jesus. The sacristan persisted that this was a work of Raphael's. The coloring appeared to me not quite to resemble that of the great master, but I understand too little of these things to be able to judge on such a subject. At any rate, it is a fine piece. A few steps below the church lies the oratory, which nearly equals it in size, and also contains a handsome painting over the altar. St. Augustine also repays the trouble of a visit. It displays great wealth in marble, sculptures, frescoes, and arabesques. St. Joseph is an also rich in various kinds of marble. Several of its large columns have been made from a single block. A clear, cold stream issues from this church. I have still to notice the lovely public gardens, which I visited after dining with the consul-general, Herr Wallenberg. I cannot omit this opportunity of gratefully mentioning the friendly sympathy and kindness I experienced on the part of this gentleman and his lady. To return to the gardens, the most interesting to me was the botanical, where a number of rare trees and plants flourish famously in the open air. The catacombs of the Augustine convent are most peculiar. They are situate immediately outside the town. From the church, which offers nothing of remarkable interest, a broad flight of stairs leads downward into a long and lofty passage cut in the rock, and receiving light from above. The skeletons of the dead line the walls, in little niches close beside each other. They are clothed in a kind of monkish robe, and each man's hands are crossed on his chest, with a ticket bearing his name, age, and the date of his death depending therefrom. 
A more horrible sight can scarcely be imagined than these dressed-up skeletons and death's hands. Many still have hair on the scalp, and some even beard. The niches in which they stand are surmounted by planks displaying skulls and bones, and the corridors are crowded with whole rows of coffins, their inmates waiting for a vacant place. If the relations of one of the favored skeletons neglect to supply a certain number of wax tapers on All Saints' Day, the poor man is banished from his position, and one of the candidates steps in and occupies his niche. The corpses of women and girls are deposited in another compartment, and look as though they were lying in state in their glass coffins, dressed in handsome silks, with ornamental coifs on their heads, ruffs and lace collars round their necks, and silk shoes and stockings, which, however, soon burst on their feet. A wreath of flowers decks the brow of each girl, and beneath all this ornament the skull appears with its hollow eyes, a parody upon life and death. Whenever anyone wishes to be immortalized in this way, his friends and relations must pay a certain sum for a place on the day of his burial, and afterwards bring wax tapers every year. The body is then laid in a chamber of lime, which remains for eight months hermetically closed, until the flesh has been entirely eaten away. Then the bones are fastened together, dressed, and placed in a niche. On All Saints' Day these corridors of death are crowded with gazers. Friends and relations of the deceased resort thither to light candles and perform their devotions. I was glad to have had an opportunity of seeing these audience halls of the dead, but I still rejoiced when I hastened upwards to sojourn once more among the living. From here I drove to Olavutza to view the Moorish castle of Ziza, celebrated for the beauty of its situation and the region around. Not far from the old castle stands a new one, with a garden of much beauty, containing also a number of fantastic toys, such as little grottoes and huts, hollow trees in which secret doors fly suddenly open, disclosing to view a nun, a monk, or some figure of the kind, etc. Here I still found a species of date-tree growing in the open air, but the fruit it bears is very small, and never becomes completely ripe. This was the last date-tree I saw. The royal villa, favorite, about a mile from the town, is situated in a lovely spot. It is built in the Chinese style, with a quantity of points, gables, and little bells. Its interior is, however, arranged according to European design, in a rich, tasteful, and artistic manner. We linger with pleasure in the rooms, each of which offers some attractive feature. Thus, for instance, one apartment contains beautiful fresco paintings, another life-size portraits of the royal family in Chinese costume, in a third the effects of damp on walls and ceiling are so accurately portrayed that at first I was deceived by the resemblance, and regretted to find a room in such a condition among all the pomp and splendor around. One small cabinet is entirely inlaid with little pieces of all the various kinds of marble that are to be found in Sicily. The large tables are made of petrified and polished woods, etc. Besides these minor attractions, a much greater one exists in the splendid view which we obtain from the terraces and from the summit of the Chinese tower. I found it difficult to tear myself from contemplating this charming prospect, a painter would become embarrassed by the very richness of the materials around him. Everything I had seen from on board here appeared before my eyes with increased loveliness, because I here saw it from a higher position, and obtained a more extended view. An ornamental garden lies close to the palace. It is flagged with large blocks of stone, 
between which spaces are left for earth. These beds are parceled out according to plans, bordered with box a foot in height, and arranged so as to form immense leaves, flowers, and arabesques, while in the midst stand vases of natural flowers. The park fills up the background. It consists merely of a few avenues and meadows, extending to the foot of Mount Rosalia. This mountain I also ascended. The finest paved street, which is sufficiently broad for three carriages to pass each other, winds in a serpentine manner around the rocky heights, so that we can mount upwards without the slightest difficulty. The convent is small and very simply constructed. The courtyard behind it, on the contrary, is exceedingly imposing. It is shut in on all sides by steep walls of rock, covered with clinging ivy in a most picturesque manner. On the left we find a little grotto containing an altar. In the foreground, on the right, a lofty gate, formed by nature and beautified by art, leads into a chapel wonderfully formed of pieces of rock and stalactites. A feeling of astonishment and admiration almost amounting to awe came upon me as I entered. The walls near the chief altar are overgrown with a kind of delicate moss of an emerald green color, with the white rock shining through here and there, and in the midst rises a natural cupola, terminating in a point. The extreme summit of this dome cannot be distinguished. It is lost in obscurity. Here and there natural niches occur, in which statues of saints have been placed. To the left of the high altar I saw the monument of St. Rosalia beautifully executed in white marble. She is represented in a recumbent posture, the size of life. The statue rests on a pedestal two feet in height. In the most highly decorated, or the most gorgeous church, I could not have felt myself more irresistibly impelled to devotion than in this grand temple of nature. From the 15th to the 18th of July in every year, a great feast is held in honor of St. Rosalia, the patron saint of the city, in the town and on the mountain. On these days a number of people make a pilgrimage to the grotto above described, where the bones of the saint were found at a time when the plague was raging at Palermo. They were carried with great pomp into the town, and from that moment the plague ceased. The road from the convent to the temple, built on the summit of a rock, and visible to the sailors from a great distance, leads us for about half a mile over loose stones. Its construction is extremely simple, and not remarkable in any way. In former times its summit was decked by a colossal statue of the saint. This fell down, and the head alone remained unmutilated. Like the statue, the fane is now in ruins, and its site is only visited for the sake of the beautiful view. On our way back to the convent, my guide drew my attention to a spot where a large tree had stood. Some years before, a family was sitting quietly beneath its shade, partaking of a frugal meal, when the tree suddenly came crashing down and caused the death of four persons. The excursion to St. Rosalia's Hill can easily be made in four or five hours. It is usual to ride up the mountain on donkeys. These animals are, however, so sluggish compared with those of Egypt, that I often preferred dismounting and proceeding on foot. The Neapolitan donkeys are just as lazy. I wished still to visit Bagaria, the summer residence of many of the townspeople. One morning I drove to this lovely spot in the company of an amiable Swiss family. The distance from Palermo is about two and a half miles, and the road frequently winding close to the sea presents a rich variety of beautiful pictures. 
We went to view the palace of Prince Vassello. The proprietor appears, however, seldom to reside here, for everything wears an air of neglect. Two halls in this building are worthy of notice. The walls of the smaller one are covered with figures and ornaments, beautifully carved in wood, with pieces of mirror-glass placed between them. The vaulted ceiling is also decorated with mirrors, some of which are unfortunately already broken. The walls of the larger hall are completely lined with the finest Sicilian marble. Above the cornices the marble has been covered with thin glass, which gives it a peculiar appearance of polish. The immense ceiling of the great hall is vaulted, like that of the smaller one, and completely covered with mirrors, all of them in good preservation. Both apartments, but particularly the large one, are said to have a magical effect when lighted up with tapers. I spent a Sunday in Palermo, and was much pleased at seeing the peasants in their festive garb, in which, however, I could discover nothing handsome, nor, indeed, anything peculiar, save the long, pendant nightcaps. The men wear jackets and breeches, and have the before-mentioned caps on their heads. The dress of the women is a spencer, a petticoat, and a kerchief of white or colored linen round the head and neck. The common people appeared to be neither cleanly nor wealthy. The rich are dressed according to the fashions of London, Paris, and Vienna. In all the Sicilian towns I found the mob more boisterous and impudent than in the East, and frequently it was my lot to witness most diabolical quarrels and fights. It is necessary to be much more on one's guard against theft and roguery among these people than among the Arabs and Bedouins. Now I acknowledge how falsely I had judged the poor denizens of the East when I took them for the most thievish of tribes. The people here and at Naples were far worse than they. I was doubly pained on making this discovery, from the fact that I saw more fasting and more praying, and more clergymen in these countries, than anywhere else. To judge from appearances, I should have taken the Sicilians and Neapolitans for the most pious people in the world. But their behavior towards strangers is rude in the extreme. Never had I been so impudently stared out of the countenance as these Sicilian towns. Fingers were pointed at me amidst roars of laughter. The boys even ran after me and jeered at me, and all because I wore a round straw hat. In Messina I threw this article away, and dressed according to the fashion which prevails here and in my own country, but still the gaping did not cease. In Palermo it was not only the street boys who stood to gaze at me, the grandees also did me the same honor, whether I drove or walked. I once asked a lady the reason of this, and requested to know if my appearance was calculated either to give offense or to excite ridicule. She explained that neither was the case, but that the only thing the citizens remarked in me was that I went about alone with the servants. In Sicily this was quite an uncommon circumstance, for there I always saw two ladies walking together, or a lady and a gentleman. Now the grand mystery was solved, but notwithstanding this, I did not alter my mode of action, but continued to walk quietly about the town with my servant, for I preferred being laughed at a little to giving any one the trouble of accompanying me about everywhere. At first this staring made me very uncomfortable, but man can adapt himself to everything, and I am no exception to the rule. The vegetation in Sicily is eminent for its luxuriant loveliness. Flowers, plants, and shrubs attain a greater height and magnitude than we find elsewhere. 
I saw here numerous species of aloes, which we cultivate laboriously in hothouses, growing wild, or planted as hedges around gardens. The stems, from which blossoms burst forth, often attain a height of from twenty to thirty feet. Their flowering season was already past. October 10th. After a sojourn of five days, I bade farewell to Palermo, and took my departure in wet weather. This was the first rain I had seen fall since the 20th of April. The temperature remained very warm. On fine days the thermometer stood at 20 degrees or 23 degrees reamer in the sun at noon. The vessel on which I now embarked was a royal mail steamer. We left Palermo at noon. Towards evening the sea became rather rough, so that the spray dashed over me once or twice, although I continually kept near the steersman. At the commencement of our journey nothing was to be seen but sky and water. But the next day, as we approached the Neapolitan coast, island after island rose from the sea, and at length the mainland itself could be discerned. Capri was the first island we approached closely. Soon afterwards my attention was drawn to a great cloud rising towards the sky. It was a smoky column from the glowing hearth of Vesuvius. At length the white line glittered on the verge of the horizon, like a band through the clear air. There was a joyful cry of, Napoli, Napoli, and Naples lay spread before me. End of section 36